few introductory statements to kind of set the stage here, and uh, then really just going to try to make two points uh, today, although uh, the, the second part of this will have, uh, it, it may seem like uh, more than that, but uh, so this is an important real-life question that we don't uh, need to shy away from. Um, and so I hope this is something that, that today you'll pro- approach an open heart, open mind, consider what Scripture has to say about it. I said this uh, last week when I was introducing it and still think it's true. Some of you are going to think what I share today is too liberal. Some of you are going to think what I say today is too conservative. And uh, that's all right. The issue is what's God's Word uh, actually saying about this subject and part of the reason that uh, some of you are going to think it's too liberal, some of you are going to think it's too conservative, is scripturally, uh, the first part of the message, the first point that I'm going to make, the first thing I'm going to say today when we get you know, really into the Bible is an absolute. It's crystal clear. There's no debate about it. The, the second aspect of this is uh, you know, more of a gray area that uh, Christians have different convictions uh, about. Remember, though, that the Bible is the authority. My job is to say what Scripture says, and then all of our jobs is to believe and do what Scripture says. Okay, and that, that's kind of the foundation. That's what, uh, you know, pulls us together. That's what gives us some common ground to stand on. Let me kind of remind you of this, too. If you're a Christian, Jesus is your Lord, and His Lordship extends to every area of life. Now, if you're not a Christian as we consider this, I just encourage you to consider the wisdom in this. Consider what I have to say about Jesus. We're not uh, trying to uh, uh, force Christian morals on you, though, until you become a follower of Christ. But this is what I want to say to Christians. I think more than your exact position, even uh, you know, about the second uh, part of this message, what's more important than that? is your attitude about the Lordship of Christ in your life. Meaning this, we can maybe view this a little differently and we can agree to disagree with each other, but whatever your position on this is, if your idea is, well, this is what I think and it's apart from Scripture, that's a problem. Or if, it, if your idea, your thought, your attitude is, it's my life, I'm going to do what I want to do, apart from Jesus and His Lordship in your life, that's a big problem. Okay, so attitude, heart, we need to come at it uh, from the right spirit when it comes to anything. Now, you know, who am I talking to here? And I think we need to kind of acknowledge that up front. Uh, You know, I'm talking to some teenagers who need to decide how they're going to handle temptation right now and what their convictions are going to be going forward in life, even as you get older. And if you're wise, you'll go ahead and make some decisions now. Uh, it, it's, it's a whole lot better to develop convictions when you're not... You don't develop convictions in the heat of the moment. If you don't have convictions when you're in temptation, you're not usually going to develop them in the moment. Um, I'm talking to some people either who have or who currently do, and you know it, have a problem with alcohol or drugs or, or something along those lines. I'm talking to some people who don't drink and don't even get the point to it. You're like, why would anybody uh, want to bother uh, with that? Um, I would guess I'm talking to some people here today 
who need to admit that they have an alcohol addiction. You're in denial about it. Some people who think, well, you know, I can handle it. I'm not really drinking that much, that kind of thing. It's not that uh, big a deal. But it's more of a problem than maybe you want to admit. I'm talking to some people who drink in moderation, out of conviction, and are careful in it, are careful that they're not a stumbling block uh, to others. They consider others in it. I'm talking to some other people who drink carefully in moderation, but you don't consider how it affects others uh, at, at, at the same time. So there's probably people that are all over the map. And, and honestly, you know, we kind of need to admit what our bias is, kind of, you know, where we are as we approach things. So let me kind of say that about myself uh, up front. So when it comes to our church, we don't have any kind of formal doctrinal statement when it comes to alcohol. Now, our elders have a unified position uh, for us that, well, one, of the, one thing that's required in our Constitution for someone to be an elder is that they pledge to be total abstainers when it comes to alcohol. Now, we don't believe the Bible requires that of pastors, but we feel like in our context in East Tennessee to not be a stumbling block, that's the wisest choice to take. Now, for all four of us, we're not really sacrificing any personal freedom in doing that because really our conviction, uh, you know, anyway, personally, is that there's, there is freedom in moderation, but there's more wisdom in abstention. And so that's really how we would approach it if we weren't elders anyway. So it, it's not really like we're, um, you know, sacrificing anything by, by being uh, elders in, in, in this regard. And so in one sense, I am speaking jointly for us as the elders and delivering this message. We've talked about this, uh, at least in the, um, you know, the big picture of what I'm saying. I mean, I won't you know, blame every word on them. If I say something goofy, you know, we can put that on me, not Roger or Rusty, or you can on Preston maybe since he's not in this service. He could be the scapegoat maybe. But um, so for me personally, uh, you know, I'll just be up front. Like, you know, when, uh, uh, you know, I was preaching about walking the light sexually a few weeks ago, you know, that's an area where there has been some struggle in my life with that, so I can relate more to that. This has never been an issue for me. It's never been a desire for me. Uh, I've always been an abstainer. I never was, uh, you know, had a desire for anything that altered my mind. So I've never drunk other than that one time with the Honduras communion incident. When uh, my dear friend, Pastor Julio Pacheco, got real wine instead of grape juice for the communion. So, uh, so you know, that's, that's never really, this has never really been my thing. And so I'll be, you know, just up front uh, about that. Um, you know, I, I will say for some of you uh, who think maybe, you know, because of that or whatever, uh, that, you know, my viewpoint on this is skewed, maybe, maybe it is. Uh, here's maybe another way that it's skewed. Uh, you know, I, I'm trying to say what Scripture says, but my pastor's heart of concern for people can't be completely kept out of this either. Um, some of you all think I don't have any emotions because I don't wear them on my sleeve, but being a pastor honestly breaks my heart sometimes. And um, sometimes I just get sick of watching people ruin their lives by bad choices, including with alcohol and drugs. And so I don't think that can be completely factored out 
of looking at this. I mean, I want this to be helpful at the end of the day. Now, one other thing I probably want to mention in the way of introduction, and then, you know, we'll, we'll jump into the Scripture. You know, some people debate, you know, when the Bible talks about drinking wine, is it talking about uh, drinking wine, or is it talking about uh, drinking grape juice? And I'm, not, I'm going to spend less than a minute on this because it's really a ridiculous debate, okay? I'm not going to get into all the nuances of this. There's like different Hebrew words that are translated wine. But th- there's basically, you know, three categories you could put this into. Sometimes when uh, Scripture is speaking of, of wine, it's speaking of unfermented or it's not clear whether or not it's fermented or unfermented. Generally, it is speaking of fermented wine. There is also a category, and you need to file this away because, come back to this later, and this is an important point to consider, there is also a category that the Bible calls strong drink, that's something that's stronger than what they normally drank in Bible times. And so, basically, there's no use debate. I mean, when people say, well, it wasn't really wine, it was grape juice, that's a dumb debate because there may be some cases where that's true, but that would be in such a minority and there's enough text where it's actually talking about fermented wine. There's no point in getting into all that, okay? So, that's all I'm saying about that. So, with that said, hopefully to kind of set the stage, what then does the Bible actually teach about drinking? And like I say, I just want to give two basic statements. There's obviously a lot that could be said about this. I just want to give two statements and then develop them, particularly the second one. First of all, uh, the first statement is simply this. Drunkenness is a sin. Drunkenness is a sin. I mean, there, I don't, there can't really be any debate about that biblically. Let me just give you a few verses. There's more we could share. Just think about what we looked at last week, Ephesians 5.18. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, which hurts you, which harms you, which leads to a wasted life, but be filled with the Spirit. Just give you a couple more. Isaiah 5, 11 and 12 says, Woe to those who rise early in the mornings, that they may follow intoxicating drink. And that would be a usage of the word. It's either translated strong drink or intoxicating drink, something stronger than the normal wine, who continue until night to wine inflames them. The harp and the strings, the tambourine and flute and wine are in their feast, but they do not regard the work of the Lord, nor consider the operation of his hands. 1 Peter 4, 1 through 3 says, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. Now, what would these lust of men be? We'll look at verse 3. He says, For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. I think that's pretty clear, isn't it? It's pretty strong uh, condemnation. If we're a Christian, this isn't just like, hey, I had a little too much to drink. This is a sin that put Jesus on the cross. That's how we need to look at it. If you're not a Christian, though, and you're struggling with drunkenness, no, this is a sin that Jesus died to forgive, and that's good news. 
Um, you know, in Galatians 5.19, we looked at this last week. It says, starts out, it says, now the works of the flesh are evident and gives this list. And if you, uh, you know, went ahead to verse 21, one of the things that it names in this list is drunkenness. So it's saying this is a sinful, disobedient work of our flesh, not a product of the Holy Spirit when we get drunk. Now, how do we actually define drunkenness? Um, you know, I, I guess our society defines it by blood alcohol content that can vary a little bit from state to state. Um, the CDC d- defines excessive drinking as more than one drink a day for women or more than two drinks a day for men. Um, you know, biblically, the word would mean, to, you know, to be filled with, to be controlled by, um, You know, if we lose control, if we're dependent upon, if it puts us in an altered state, if we're getting buzzed, if we're pushing the envelope, going up to the edge consistently, I think all of those things would actually be biblical issues uh, or that would possibly fit the category of drunkenness. Now, in in the desire to be helpful, and there's some different lists like this, How do you know if you're addicted? So if you drink, how do you know if you're just drinking in moderation versus whether or not this may actually be an addiction? I'm going to run through these really quickly, but I want to share 20 questions with you. And uh, according to uh, the producers of these questions, they say that if you would answer yes to at least five of these, there's a really good chance that you have an addiction. Okay, so I'm going to run through these quickly. But if you drink, just be honest with yourself and consider this. One, do you spend a great deal of time talking or thinking about getting high? Two, do you use alone or when no one else is using? Three, have you ever had a blackout or memory loss during or after use? Do you hoard or protect an extra supply to keep from running out, or I might add to that just based on pastoral experience, are you hiding a stash from the people around you? Do you need more and more of whatever substance you use, alcohol, drugs, whatever, to get high? Do you use more than you originally planned? Do you use to escape from your problems? Do you do anything to get a large amount of substance into your body quickly? Is your use worrying or upsetting your family? Do you lose time at school or work due to usage? Do you use first thing in the morning? Do you avoid people or places that do not condone your usage? Do you spend more money on substances than you can afford? Do you use one substance to offset the effects of another? Do you lie about how much you're using? Do you do things under the influence that you wouldn't do while sober? Do you think that you need to be high to have a good time or to lose your inhibitions or whatever? Um, Have you tried to control your use but failed? Are you ashamed of your use? Have you watched your spiritual life decline or disintegrate because of whatever you're using? Like I said, the the authors of those questions say if you answer yes to at least five of those, you're probably an addict. I think five may be a generous number. 
I think if you would answer yes to two or three of those, you probably have some reasons for concern, and you ought to probably be talking to somebody about it and getting some help for it. And so, you know, if you say, this is a struggle for me, you know, what do you do? Well, I would say the first step is to admit it, to be honest. I mean, that's the first step in overcoming anything. You know, addiction is, is, is tough because it's mental, it's physical, it's spiritual, it, it, it's emotional. It, it can take over every part of us. But whatever it is you're facing, you can overcome it through the power of Christ if you're willing to come to the end of yourself, to surrender, to lay it down, to do whatever it takes, to change your, your thinking, to change your associations. You know, if, if, like, and if, if you're like, I hate this, I can't be this way anymore, i got to change, you can find a way to change. I, I really like how Justin Reimer, who uh, uh, leads our Celebrate Recovery ministry, puts it. He says, uh, you have to chase your sobriety as hard as you chased your addiction. And I think that's a really good way to put it. You can overcome, but you have to make some choices. Now, so drunkenness is a sin. Let me say two other things here, and then we'll move on to the second part of this, more of the gray area. Like I said, that's an absolute. But I think there's two other things I need to say here. First is this. We are commanded to obey our laws, so underage drinking or providing alcohol for underage drinkers is sinful. Romans 13, 1 through 5 says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you uh, for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. So what does that mean practically? That means if you're underage, there is no choice as to whether or not you should do this or not, even in moderation. It's sin because you're disobeying the authorities, which means you're disobeying Scripture, which means you're disobeying God. What it also means practically is if you are supplying alcohol to someone who's underage, you ought to get arrested. That's just the reality. It's sin. It's wrong. I would also say that we probably say, well, alcohol, what about drugs? I would say unequivocally, and I don't have time to develop this, but I would say that drug use is also clearly sinful because it would be the equivalent of drunkenness in Ephesians 5.18. The only purpose to use drugs is to get high. So it would have to be the equivalent of drunkenness. It's not like, I mean, you can drink a little bit of alcohol. You can drink in moderation. You can't really do that with drugs. I mean, there's also other reasons, I think, biblically that you could apply there. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
Drug use is harmful. The Bible teaches us to live in self-control under the power of the Holy Spirit. And of course, if you're getting high, you're losing control. That's part of the, uh, the problem with drunkenness. I think it's even something you should consider if you think it's okay to drink in moderation because it is a biblical command to exercise self-control. But you're, uh, you're require, if you're required to exercise self-control, why do something that by definition makes it harder for you to exercise self-control if you don't want to, you know, sin, get drunk in the first place. I just question the wisdom of that, but I'm probably getting ahead of myself there. So drunkenness is a sin. Underage drinking is a sin. Drug use is a sin. Those are biblical absolutes, okay? Now, we get to what's a little bit more of, of the gray area of things, where, you know, Christians come at this from somewhat different uh, viewpoints. And I'm going to tell you my viewpoint. This is what I believe the Bible teaches. And then I'll just kind of wrap it up in this statement. There's freedom to drink in moderation, but is there wisdom? There's freedom to drink in moderation, but is there wisdom? In other words, it's not, it's not a sinful choice to drink in moderation. I mean, like... You know, if, if you uh, have a glass of wine, if you, you know, have a champagne toast at a wedding, whatever, I can't say that's sin. But for me, I don't believe it's the wisest choice, so I'm not going to partake. My conscience really would not allow me to do it, and that's a factor in this for everyone. If, if something is wrong in your conscience, whether or not Scripture spells it out as wrong, it's wrong for you to do it. But I would just say for anybody, there's freedom, but is there wisdom? And you say, well, why do you approach it this way? Well, why do I believe there's freedom? Well, let me just give you five reasons. First of all, the Bible does not forbid drinking in moderation. It just doesn't. Second, Jesus turned water into wine and apparently drank wine. Now, I would add, if that's like your favorite Bible story or the only Bible verse you haven't mentioned, that should probably go at the top of the list of those 20 questions, right? Because how many people who have an alcohol problem, you say something to them about it, they'll throw that out there. Jesus turned water into wine. So, uh, you heard that one before, Lori? Yeah. Uh, all right. Um, scripture actually commends the use of wine in some cases and circumstances, um, there's several examples of this. I'm just going to give you a couple for time's sake. Psalm 104, uh, verses 14 and 15 says, He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the service of man, that he may bring forth fr food from the earth, and wine that makes glad the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread which strengthens man's heart. So there is some kind of sense there where it seems as though God gave you know, wine as a gift to uh, people. Uh, you know, you probably say it's something that's been perverted by the fall. Also, 1 Timothy 5.23. Like I said, there's other examples. Just giving you time, a couple for time's sake. Paul told Timothy, he says, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. So apparently then, maybe now, there can be a medicinal kind of use for it. And so Paul told Timothy to, you know, uh, use a little wine. Now, I would also point out here, though, this would imply that uh, Timothy was a teetotaler, and Paul was telling him to use some wine for his stomach's sake, okay? 
Uh, fourth reason is uh, really this is the instruction of the pastoral epistles is moderation, not complete abstention. If you look at 1 Timothy 3.3, 3, speaking of pastors, it says not given to wine, which means not addicted to wine. Verse 8, uh, speaking of deacons, says not given, not addicted to much wine. Same thing, speaking of pastor, instructions for pastors, requirements for pastors. Titus chapter 1, verse 7 says, once again, not given to wine, not addicted to wine. Chapter 2, verses three, verse 3, is it's giving instructions to some different kind of groups of people within the church. And speaking to the older women, says they're not to be given to much wine. So, once again, it's not completely uh, forbidding it. And then the other reason I would give is, I mean, if you look historically and even currently for many, many Christians around the world, they would take this biblical position that there is freedom to drink in moderation. And so that would be just a, a short version of the case for that side of, of things. So you may say then, well, if you're saying Scripture gives the freedom to drink in moderation, why do you believe that there's wisdom uh, that it could be the wiser choice to not drink at all. Well, I want to give you five reasons why uh, I look at it that way. And, and, and this is kind of bouncing it out because what we just looked at is one side of it. Now we're going to look at another side of it. And this is why it's a gray area is because there are a couple of sides to this in Scripture. So, first of all, I think we need to consider the warnings of Scripture. The warnings of Scripture when it comes to wine. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1 says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Proverbs chapter 23, starting in verse 29, says this, Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? who has wounds without cause, who has redness of eyes, those who linger long at the wine, those who go in search of mixed wine. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. And some of you have experienced that in your life, and you know the absolute truth of that uh, statement. Your eyes will see strange things, and your heart will utter perverse things. I mean, this is a very vivid, poetic description of drunkenness. And yes, you will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, or like one who lies at the top of the mast, saying, They have struck me, but I was not hurt. They have beaten me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake that I may seek another drink, which is a poetic description of addiction? Don't ignore the warnings of Scripture. There's a, there's a second thing, though, I think we need to look at, and I think we need to consider this when we consider any issue, and that is the fruit test. What do I mean by that? Well, Jesus said, Matthew 7, 16, you'll know them by their fruits. The Bible says in Galatians 6, 7 that, uh, you know, we reap what we sow. And, and so, you know, I would just ask the question, what are the results of drinking? I mean, what good comes from it and what bad comes from it? You may say, well, you know, the bad results are going to come from drinking in excess and not from in moderation. Which I would uh, say, okay, I'll, I'll grant you that point. But I would also say then, you can't drink in excess if you don't drink at all. 
And that's why I say it's safer. In fact, if you believe it's okay to drink in moderation, you should be the strictest about this drunkenness issue. I don't have to worry about it. You do, though. And it's very clear that drunkenness is a sin. It's not something to laugh off. It's not something to excuse. Someone who drinks needs to be the strictest about drunkenness. Now, once again, if you can handle it, but you've got to ask this question too, I think. How do you know you can handle it until you do it? I mean, what if you've got an addictive personality? What if you're somehow genetically predisposed to this, which I know the scientists are still arguing about all of that? The only way to guarantee that you'll never become an alcoholic is by not drinking at all. So, there's freedom in moderation, but is there wisdom? Is it safer uh, to not to? Uh, you know, I've talked to, to Justin uh, Justin Reimer, who leads our CR, as kind of as I was leaving, he was coming in to celebrate recovery on Monday, and kind of told him what I was preaching on. I was asking about this, and you know, if, if if you know Justin, you know his testimony. You know, he was in high school, he's a really good student, kind of straight and narrow kind of kid, really good basketball player, and um, you know, then he you know went to college, he started drinking, started partying, that kind of thing, and. Um, you know, his life kind of spiraled, and I think he would say, you know, we read that, don't be drunk with wine, which is dissipation. You know, one of the definitions of that is wasted living. He wasted a few years of his life. I mean, he would completely agree with that statement. He told me I could share this today. But, you know, he's been clean sober for over six years now. And, but, you know, he made this statement to me. I mean, we were standing out here in this hallway outside the kids' registration desk, and he said, you know, if, if I'm sober... And somebody poured a thousand pills out on, out on this desk out here. There's no temptation for me. But if I was drinking, even after six years, even after doing so well, I mean, God's using him and doing great in his job, his family, all these kind of things. He says, I don't really know what would happen if I'd been drinking and then I got put in a situation where there were those pills. So, is it wise to take those kind of chances? I mean, just here's just some statistics about the fruit of alcohol abuse. According to the World Health Organization, more than 3 million people died as a result of harmful use of alcohol in 2016. This represents 5% of all deaths in the world. Uh, they say overall the, the harmful use of alcohol causes more than 5% of the global disease burden. Globally, an estimated 237 million men and 46 million women suffer from alcohol use disorders. Uh, in the United Kingdom, one in 10 people in a hospital bed are alcohol dependent, and one in five are doing themselves harm uh, by their drinking, uh, according to like the National Health Service of, of, of Britain. The, the, our CDC estimation, they say this is probably uh, a low number, that alcohol abuse cost our country, our taxpayers, uh, at least $250 billion, with a B, dollars a year. I mean, just think about personal examples we know. And, and, and I've tried to approach this message by not like giving the worst case uh, scenario and more just kind of, you know, sticking to facts and scriptural truths and not, you know, giving these uh, emotional tear-jerking stories. But let's be, be real. How many people, families do we know that have been destroyed by alcohol, drug abuse? Um, 
the National Health Institute, in the first sentence of an article, says, quote, approximately half of all sexual assaults are associated with either the perpetrator's alcohol consumption, the victim's alcohol consumption, or both. People do things they wouldn't normally do when they're drunk. That's just the reality. So what's the fruit? And is there wisdom in making something that has this kind of fruit such a big part of our life? Why support it? Third reason is there is something of a difference between fermented wine in Bible times and distilled alcohol today. Now, for me, this in and of itself is a reason to not drink. I'm not going to go so far. Like I say, I'm still saying there's freedom and moderation. I think that's the biblical uh, you know, position you have to take. But I think this point here pushes that. Okay? And, and, and this is what I mean. Scripture like we looked at, sometimes speaks, positive, speaks positively of wine. But there's only one instance that I've found that it speaks positively, it encourages strong drink or intoxicating drink. And that's in Proverbs 31 when it says to give strong drink to one who is perishing. Basically, it would be the equivalent of giving morphine today that they didn't have then. In every other case, it, it, it condemns, it, it, it criticizes, talks about bad results that come from using strong drink. Personally, I believe that alcohol today is more akin to what's called strong drink in the Bible than what we know as wine in the Bible. Now you say, well, why do you believe that? And like I say, I'm not going to be you know, dogmatic about this. But this is the issue. First of all, we know, I mean, you just, just Google it. Do the research. Alcohol is getting more alcoholic today. Through science, those kind of things, the alcohol content of wine can be upped. I mean, just, uh, this isn't like from Christian websites. This is just, uh, you know, read about wine. Read about, uh, that's just fact. But, but when you go back into Bible times, I want to read a quote from an article by the name of, man by the name of Robert Stein. And just in case you're wondering, he's not like a Southern Baptist from Tennessee. He's a professor in Minnesota. He has a Ph.D. from a Presbyterian seminary in New Jersey, okay? Um, he writes this. In ancient times, wine was usually stored in large pointed jugs called am amphorae. When wine was to be used, it was poured from the amphorae into large bowls called craters where it was mixed with water. Last year, I had the privilege of visiting the great archaeological museum in Athens, Greece, where I saw dozens of these large craters. At the time, it did not dawn on me what their use signified about the drinking of wine in biblical times. From these craters, cups of Kelix were then filled. Uh, cups or Kelix, sorry, the Greek word. What is important for us to note is that before wine was drunk, it was mixed with water. The Kelix were filled from the amphorae, uh, not from the amphorae, but from the craters. Now, that doesn't mean it wasn't alcoholic. doesn't mean you couldn't get drunk from it. It just means it was diluted. Now, he goes on to say this, and you can, you know, Robert Stein, Google it. There's other sources that will tell you the same thing. He says the ratio of water to wine varied. Homer mentions a ratio of 20 parts water to one part wine. Pliny mentions a ratio of eight parts water uh, to one part wine. 
In one ancient work, Athanasius, the learned uh, banquet written around AD 200, we find in Book 10 a collection of statements from earlier writers about drinking uh, practices. And basically in all of these, the ratio is somewhere between two uh, parts water to one part wine and five parts uh, water uh, to one part wine. And then he goes on to say sometimes the ratio goes down to one and one and even lower, but it should be noted that such a mixture is referred to as, quote, strong wine. Drinking wine unmixed, on the other hand, was looked upon as a Scythian or barbarian custom. Uh, Plutarch, for instance, states, we call a mixture wine, although the larger of the component parts is water. None of these are Christian or Jewish writers. The ratio of water might vary, but only barbarians drink it unmixed. And a mixture of wine and water of equal parts was seen as strong drink and frowned upon. The term wine or oinos in the ancient world then did not mean wine as we understand it today, but wine mixed with water. Usually a writer simply referred to the mixture of water and wine as wine to indicate that the beverage was not a mixture of water and wine. He would say a mixed wine. Now, he goes on to say, one might wonder whether the custom of mixing wine with water was limited to the ancient Greeks. The burden of proof would be upon anyone who argued that the pattern of drinking wine in Jewish society was substantially different from that of the examples already given. And we do have examples in both Jewish and Christian literature and perhaps in the Bible that wine was likewise understood as being a mixture of wine and water. In several instances in the Old Testament, a distinction is made between wine and strong drink, which he gives several examples of. And then he goes on to say the 1901 Jewish Encyclopedia states that in the rabbinic period at least, uh, yayin or wine is to be distinguished from shikar or strong drink. The former is diluted with water. The latter is undiluted. And, you know, he goes on, he quotes some other Jewish sources. And basically, I'm not saying it was always this way, but it seems as though in Jewish life, the most common ratio was three parts water to one part wine. So once again, I'm not saying that doesn't mean there's not freedom in moderation, but I am saying you should consider this and understand that when you talk about the fermented wine mixed with water in the Bible versus distilled alcohol today, you are somewhat talking about apples and oranges, and it's not necessarily the same thing. And if you still feel the freedom to drink in moderation, I think it should lead to some really serious moderation because of the alcohol content. Fourth reason to consider would be uh, that there are some questions we need to consider when evaluating gray areas. And let me just hit these quickly. Uh, first of all, and, and this, this applies to anything that the Bible maybe doesn't spell out completely that's more of a secondary kind of matter. Uh, if it's a gray area, what kind of questions should we ask? First of all, is it helpful? In 1 Corinthians 6.12, it says, All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10.23 says, All things are lawful for me, but all things... Uh, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Does it help me? Does it build me up? Does it help others? Does it build them up? You know, one of the reasons that uh, I don't drink, that the elders are taking this policy, is I don't want anybody to look at me and say, he does it, so it must be okay, and that end up ruining that person's life. I don't want that on my conscience. Is it addictive? 1 Corinthians 6, uh, 12. Uh, once again, we read it before. It says, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. If something is addictive to us, it's sinful. 
Now, that could be coffee, that could be our phone, that could be video games, that could be whatever, but if it's bringing us under its power, then it's wrong. You say, well, I can handle it. Well, are you sure? You know, after I, you know, I just kind of briefly mentioned, uh, you know, alcohol last week as we, you know, Ephesians 5, 18, more focused on the Holy Spirit. There's a, a kid came up to me after the second service, I think he was in middle school, who, who asked me this question. He said, okay, if it's a sin to get drunk, but if you, the, when you start drinking, probably the first time you, you drink, uh, aren't you going to get drunk? What should you do? I said, well, maybe you shouldn't take the first drink. And he said, okay, and moved on. And uh, uh, something to think about. Um, can it be done to the glory of God? You believe you can drink to the glory of God because 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So when you drink, are you doing it to the glory of God? Can, uh, next question uh, would be, is why I, and this probably goes to the last one, will I be ashamed of it at the judgment seat of Christ? In other words, are you fully convinced in your mind that you can do this as unto uh, the Lord? Romans 14, 11 says, For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. But then in, in verse 23 it says, and this is the context of being fully convinced in our minds, not violent violating your conscience. He says, he who doubts is condemned if he eats because if he does, if he does not eat from faith, uh, because he does not eat from faith, for whatever is not of faith is sin. Can you drink in faith? Can you drink with a clear conscience? Can you drink, uh, you know, to the glory of God? Uh, what's your conviction about that? And then something I really think we need to think about is, is it a stumbling block to others? Maybe you can handle it, but can the people around you handle it. Romans 14, 13 says, therefore, let us not judge one another. So if you have a different conviction uh, about a gray area, don't judge them, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or cause to fall in our brother's way. And then verse 21 says, it's good neither to uh, eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. So how does it affect uh, other people? And then the last reason that I would give you know, why do I believe there's wisdom in abstaining is, and this goes back to Ephesians 5.18 and, and something I said last week, I believe alcohol is a bad substitute for the Holy Spirit. So I would just ask the question, if you drink, if you believe it's okay, why do you drink? When do you drink? You know, what are the circumstances? Is it an occasional thing? Is it a regular thing? You know, is it something, is it at a wedding? Or are you drinking by yourself a lot? What are you trying to get from it? You know, are, are you trying to fill a hole? You trying to, uh, you know, sue the hurt? You trying to meet a need uh, in, in your life? You know, once again, I think a lot of the things that people look for in alcohol is really what the Holy Spirit gives us. People look for peace, the fruit of the Spirit's peace. People look for joy, the fruit of the Spirit's uh, joy. I believe that alcohol is a bad uh, substitute for the Holy Spirit. Listen, Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the living water. He's the one who can fill us up. He's the one who can give us true and genuine satisfaction from above. I, I want to close with this. I want to go to the book of Ecclesiastes. And um, in, in Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 1, and, and, and basically the way I read uh, Ecclesiastes is uh, I think it's Solomon's personal testimony. You know, Solomon walked with the Lord when he was younger. He was led astray, you know, with all these pagan women and, uh, and, and this kind of thing. And so, you know, he, he, um, you know, he was, 
he, he, led, he was led astray, he struggled, and then he came back to the Lord near the end of his life. And I believe he recounts kind of this uh, journey. And so he, he says at the beginning of the book that vanity of vanities, all is vanity. You know, that, that life is, is just empty. And then as you go into to chapter 2, there's really there's a passage uh, that, that's there uh, that, 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 that I'd like us to read together. Aaron, do you have that or do I need to, to read it from up here? Okay, thanks. So he, he says, uh, Ecclesiastes 2.1, he says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with mirth, therefore enjoy pleasure, but surely this also was vanity. So Solomon, I'd like to say, County's testimony, he lived for pleasure. He says, that's vanity, that's emptiness. He said, I said of laughter, madness, and of mirth, what does it accomplish? And he says, I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their lives. I made my works great. I built myself houses and planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards, and I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove. I acquired male and female servants and, and had servants born in my house. I had great, greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered to myself silver and gold and the special treasures of kings and the provinces. I acquired male and female singers the delights of the sons of men and musical instruments of all kind. So I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom re remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for I, my heart rejoiced in all my labor. And this was my reward from all my labor. In other words, he said, I had it all. And then he says this in verse 11. He says, then I looked on all the works that my hands had done and on the labor in which I had toiled. And indeed, all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. Listen, we can have it all, but apart from knowing Jesus Christ, the living water, the bread of life, apart from knowing our Creator and fulfilling the purpose for which He made us, life is empty and vain and nothing. I mean, that's, that's what He's saying. It's like, take it from me. I mean, this is His testimony. Take it from the one who's had it all, done it all, and, you know, life just doesn't work that way. And so, you know, the end of his testimony is this. He says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter in chapter 12. Last two verses of the book. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is, men's, this is man's all for God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. He's saying fulfillment and peace and joy and satisfaction and meaning and purpose is found in knowing God and doing his will. It's not in all of these outward things. It's not in what, you know, pleasures we can enjoy and all these kind of things. So alcohol is a bad substitute for the Holy Spirit. And listen, if you're struggling with it, you say, what do I do? Well, I've got some good news for you. Jesus died for all of our sins. You see, here's the first step. John Piper says something that I think is so profound in how we handle things in our lives. He puts it this way. You can't overcome an unforgiven sin. You can't overcome an unforgiven sin. 
So the issue is not to try to clean up your life. The issue is to come to Christ and let him forgive you and let him change you from the inside out because he died for your sins and he rose to give you new life. And when he comes in your life through his spirit, he can give you the power to change, but it starts with being forgiven. You know, sometimes we're like, well, I got to stop this. I got to clean this up. I got to be different. Listen, if you uh, cut your hand and you were bleeding profusely, you wouldn't say, I need to stop the bleeding and clean up the mess and then go to the ER. You go get the bleeding stopped. And that's what we need to do spiritually. We need to come to Christ, come to the cross, let him forgive us, and he can give us the power and the resources to change. So whatever your sin is, whatever your struggle is, whether it's this or something else, Jesus invites you to bring your sin to his cross and receive his forgiveness, his righteousness in exchange because he died for all of our sins. Listen, if you're struggling with this, I'd encourage you to be honest about it. Talk to somebody. Get help. Go to Celebrate Recovery here tomorrow night at 6 o'clock. Make an appointment with Lori. Talk to one of our pastors. Talk to a friend, a small group leader, somebody, and just say, you know, I'm having a hard time. Listen, people won't judge you for taking that step. They will help you, work with you. We'll do whatever we can to overcome. You say, well, I'm not struggling with it. I would say, consider what Scripture teaches. Consider what we've looked at. Decide what your conviction should be. And let me remind us once again, we're not to judge each other over gray areas, but we are to hold each other accountable over absolute areas. That's why I said we need to help each other. And, and, and you know, if someone's struggling with this, we need to come alongside them and not to excuse it, but to, because you can't overcome this by excusing it. That's part of the reality of it. But to help people uh, deal with it, to help people get healing and, and freedom, that's part of our job as the church. So let's bow our heads and close our eyes.